So it's the second day of the retreat, and we're still here. <laughs> and here we are, remains a very significant statement. One of the practices that I have at times is when I'm meditating, is to say the word here as my mental note. There's a kind of thing I say repeatedly. And I use that when my mind drifts off a lot. And it's very hard for me to be present, thinking about this and that or whatever. And, uh, and I just say here, um, uh, not like a command to a dog, uh, but just uh, here I am, here, this is what's going on. Here, this is what's happening. And um, it's meant to be very allowing of what's happening, but it's a reminder that I'm here, and here is a mind which is wandering off. And then I'll try to notice what this is like. What's it like to have a mind which is active, or thinking about something, concerned about something? What are the feelings connected to it? What are the body sensations that are involved? Is what's this experience like here? And if I'm very uh, distractible, uh, I won't stay there very long. <laughs> I'll go. I'll slip off again, and then when, as soon as I notice, I say here. And sometimes I know that I'm not so stable in the present moment, so I'll just uh, keep it up a steady, relaxed rhythm here, here. And it's it's uh, there's no conflict with what's happening. There's no idea that what's happening is wrong or bad or shouldn't be happening, but rather it's recognizing that I'm still here, that here I am. And here in this moment, this is what's happening. And so, for example, if you're thinking about the future, we get lost in the future, that's not useful for meditation, for waking up. But if you say here, and notice, oh, here in the present moment is a person thinking about the future, then you're present. You don't have to be in conflict with the future thinking. If you step back in a sense and just see it, oh, this is what's happening. There's something very uh, significant, very important about learning how to practice mindfulness uh, without being in conflict with what is, with what's going on. But to learn to kind of find the Dharma, find the awakening, find the truth here, here with this experience. As it's often said in our tradition, uh, mindfulness has a lot to do with, not with having different kinds of experiences, but with uh, seeing your experiences in a different way or relating to your experience in a different way. Many people are really interested in having the right experience. And um, you know, deep concentration, or great bliss, or, or just some relief, something. Um, and, uh, and so we're looking for some experience. But really in mindfulness, we're not looking for an experience. We're looking for a way to see our experience, whatever it might be, in a new way, in a way that's... Uh, 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 we're not caught by the experience, we're free of the experience, we're spacious, allowing, not in conflict with what's going on. Not in conflict, the word, not the expression non-conflict here, does not mean then we continue to indulge in what's going on. Uh, but we're, it's a stepping back from being pulled into the orbit, to the vortex of thoughts and feelings where we get lost in them. Because that's, that is a doing. That's a kind of, you know, so we're not, we're not trying to feed or be involved. We're also trying not to be in conflict. And the way to do that is just to be mindful, to be aware. This is what's happening. Thinking, feeling, whatever. So here, I'll say it repeatedly until some, at some point my mind will settle down some and then I don't need to, need to do that anymore. 
So I certainly recommend it if some of you. It's such a simple thing. Say here. And it also implies that what your experience is here is not being defined. There's no expectation in it. Or like it's supposed to be a particular way. It's more like here. And what is here? Here. And then notice, oh, that this is what's right now. As opposed to kind of looking for the, you know, some, some particular kind of experience, you know. So here we are. Here we are, here, this place we are, is also uh, talked about in rather grand language in Buddhism. Uh, sometimes here is uh, described as the uh, Bodhi Manda. Bodhi is awakening, and Manda is a place of awakening. The Buddha sat, and he sat on the Bodhi tree, was sitting in the Bodhi Manda. And um, you can go to Bodhgaya, not so much anymore, but used to be, you can go sit under the tree, still a little bit, but they have a fence around it now, part of the, of the trunk. Um, sit at the Bodhi Manda of the Buddha. But there's the idea that each place where you are right now, no matter where you are, that's your Bodhi Manda, that's your place of awakening. But you don't want to also get distracted by the idea that it's on your mat or on your chair, like that place exactly. It's your lived place. It's where you are here. It's here in your sensations of your body, sensations of your breathing. It's here in the thoughts that come through your mind. It's here with the emotions that arise and pass. Uh, it's here with your motivations and intentions. Here you'll find the Bodhimanda to wake up here. In the Zen tradition, there's a story of two monks who were walking the countryside and one of them suddenly stopped on uh, a hillside someplace and pointed to the ground and said, This is a great place for a temple. And the other monk bent down, picked up a blade of grass, and stuck it into the ground and said, The temple is built. <laughs> this place is a great is sacred to be made into a sacred place. And how do you make it sacred? How do you make it a temple? It's already that way. It isn't that you have to build, you know, big pagoda and Buddhas and all that. But this place already is the Bodhimanda, is a special place here. Here. Here in your burning knees, aching back. Here in your restless mind. There's a way of seeing that, a way of relating to it, that is profoundly meaningful, maybe even liberating, without necessarily getting rid of it, but relating to a different way. A big part of this practice, to kind of say it in a different way, is to recognize there are always two things going on. There's what's happening and how you relate to what's happening. And sometimes we, sometimes we focus too much on what's happening and then not enough on how we're relating to it. And it's how we relate, how we relate to our experience that is really big, that's really the real, the wide road of the Dharma, the Dharma path is found there. How do I relate? What's my relationship right now to my experience? What's my relationship right now to my burning knees? What's my relationship right now to my wandering mind? Am I angry? Am I upset? Am I scared? Do I judge myself negatively? Do I feel like it's bad? Um, am I relieved that my mind is wandering, finally I get a distraction. You know, how do we relate? And can we relate in a way that is very present and really clearly see in a very kind of clear, 
mature way, see this is what's happening, at the same time not be in conflict with what's happening. One of the cliches, Buddhist cliches that come from over 2,000 years ago is the characteristic, the character of the Dharma is non-conflict. If you want to know how to characterize the Dharma, it's through the expression non-conflict, the quality. Last year, my older son uh, was in fifth grade, and my and the fifth grade teacher did something really neat at the beginning of the year. He had worked with the students the year before, so he knew them all pretty well. So over the summer, he came up he came up with a, a, a poem for each kid, their poem, and then um, uh, each week, uh, each kid would re- during the week they had a schedule kind of would recite his or her poem to the class out loud. In the course of the year, my son learned most of the other poems. He certainly knew his own. And he was very happy about his poem because it was one of the shortest. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I, I thought it was really a great poem. And in fact, my son would say this out loud every week. And I hope that it's something that stays with him for the rest of his life. His poem is this. Mm-hmm. Um, Without darkness, without darkness, nothing comes to be born. As without light, nothing flowers. That was it. Without darkness, nothing is born. Without light, nothing flowers. Oh, it's rich, I think, for kind of unfolding and unpacking and all kinds of things. But what's happening for you here in retreat? In the darkness, in your darkness, what is about to be born? What's being given birth here? How would you know since it's in the dark? Are you willing to let something arise out of the darkness to be born? Who knows what's getting ready, coming through you? And what's flowering? In the light of awareness, the light of your kindness and compassion, what is it that can grow and flower and mature? And then what's not in my son's poem, which uh, maybe should be in the next verse, um, what is it that's dying? So here in the retreat, what's dying for you? What's passing away? What are you letting go of? what's coming to its end of its useful or not so useful life in you. And what is it that's coming through to be born? And I think what happens in retreats like this is that all three can be happening kind of at the same time, at different areas or levels of our life. Something dies, something comes to birth. And birth, you know, coming, things coming to birth are not always, and things dying and things flowering. <laughs> it's not always an easy process. It involves change. It involves sometimes, in this kind of uh, practice, a significant amount of self-revelation or self-knowledge, self-understanding, facing ourselves in our darkness and our difficulties. One of the things I've learned, one of two things, two, two things that I'm very grateful for, that I feel like I've learned from this Buddhist practice, 
One is I've learned to trust what unfolds when I'm aware. When I'm really present and aware and mindful of what's going on, without being in conflict, without indulging in it and being caught in it, that I can trust whatever it is that unfolds. Whether it's some seemingly, conventionally, some unfortunate arising, something which is not so pretty, or if it's something that is really beautiful, whatever it might be, I've learned that I could trust that arising. Because who knows what's coming through me, what, why it needs to happen. I've sat down to meditate and, um, and uh, sobbed. And at the time of sobbing, I had, you know, I had no, I had no context, understanding of why or what or the value of that. It just, I just felt miserable. And afterwards, I felt purified. I had no idea that that was kind of that something was being cleansed from me in those tears. So. To tr- you know, I, I feel at least that, that one of the things I want to try to convey as a teacher is how, how much is possible to trust what unfolds. And that's particularly uh, a good place to experiment with this or to learn that trust is on meditation retreats, is in meditation. Because I, I would like to suggest that meditation is one of the safest places uh, you can allow things to unfold and very, very, very little is asked of you. I mean, you don't have to perform at work. There's not going to be a peer review. You know, there's not going to be, um, you know, you know, it's just, they don't really don't have to do very, very little. So it's a really a wonderful place to be curious, as Mary Grace said yesterday, be curious about what is going to move through you and see, is it really trustable if you get out of the way? Getting out of the way means you don't interfere with it, you don't, fight with it, you don't indulge in it, you don't get involved in it. You just kind of let it be and be notice it there in the field of awareness. Really notice it. Oh, this is what's happening. Things might not be trustable. Things might not trust trustfully move through us if we're not aware. Then I might not be so trustable. I know for myself, but I'm not 100% trustable to myself if I'm not aware. But if I stay aware, it seems like I can trust whatever's happening. That's one thing I've learned. The other thing that uh, I've learned um, through, I feel like I've learned it through practice, but many other experiences in life as well, is uh, uh, I've learned to love more and more people. Like, I'd like to believe I love everyone now. But, I don't know. and I just feel like this expanding circles of uh, really deep appreciation and um, valuing of people. And part of that is to value uh, the, all the differences. It's almost like seeing the differences in people, how unique and different everyone is. Um, kind of one of the things that's helped me to kind of open up my field of love and appreciation. Right here is your bodhimanda, this body. As they say in Mahayana, sometimes they say, uh, this body is awakening. This body, here, you, this experience here. And so that means you, in your uniqueness, in your unique expression of life, your uniqueness of who you are, it isn't like you have to make yourself into someone else. When I was a new Zen student, 
Um, I thought the point of Zen was to become like Ed Brown, who is still one of my Dharma heroes. But that, you know, and then I was I was gone from Zen Center for a while. When I came back, about a year later, I still thought for about a year I thought I was supposed to be like Ed Brown. And then I saw um, Philip Whalen. He was a Zen priest at Zen Center, and um, he was not like Ed Brown. And I realized that one morning when. Um, he was uh, kind of late to breakfast and he was bending over his cold cereal, eating it while he was reading the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is not how Ed Brown would do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized that um, the point was not to be Ed Brown. The point was to wake up and be free. As they say in Zen, they say, when, when you're yourself, Zen is Zen. So, um, this, you know, uniqueness. And one of the great uh, uh, lessons of uniqueness that I, I learned was not through my practice, but by reading The, the Economist. <laughs> there was an article some years ago, a year ago, in The Economist, in the science section, my favorite part of The Economist, um, about a study on um, attention deficit disorder, ADD. And there were some researchers who had found that uh, in hunter-gatherer societies, there's a very high incident of what we call ADD, something like 20% of the population. But when such a high percentage, and they noticed that when, when people had, these hunter-gatherers moved to the cities, try to live urban lives, it was really hard for them. And they would end up in trouble, or just their life would go downhill very hard. But back in the, you know, in the hunter-gatherer society, that kind of lifestyle, they were fine. Everything went well for them. And the researchers' uh, theory or conclusion is that um, uh, in a hunter-gatherer society, it's very useful, important, adaptable for 20% of the population to have what we call ADD, to be hyper um, kind of uh, vigilant, to always be looking for new experiences, not settle for one thing, always looking for new things, new animals and hunting and all that. That that's a really kind of uh, 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 supports that kind of society really well. And it's not seen as an illness, it's not seen as a disorder. But now we call it a disorder. For some million years, it was considered functional. <laughs> and just in the last decades, we've given it a label, we call it disorder. Is it a disorder? Or is it a particular gift? My son, my older son, has dyslexia. And uh, when we researched it, before he knew he knew he had dyslexia, uh, we came across a book called The Gift of Dyslexia. And so we actually went to this program where the, the author had his program for dyslexia. And when he, when my son was told that he has dyslexia, he was told in the context that he has a gift. And, and his dyslexia teacher there um, uh, also had dyslexia. He was a really neat guy. So my son looked up to him and... So he didn't think there was something wrong with him. He just thought it was this neat thing that he could do. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so when do we, you know, when do we consider ourselves to be wrong or bad or off? Um, and when do we kind of see that we're unique? And how do we respect our uniqueness and allow it to flower, to be born and to flower? And how do we know that what we think is unique is not neurotic? Or how do we know that it's not a lot of attachments connected to it? I think that's the task of mindfulness in the Dharma, is to help tease those two apart. 
and um, the um, and so we can really and so it's okay to be unique and different from everyone else. When I read the Pali Canon teachings of the Buddha, they um, there seems to be almost at times a celebration of differences to people. The different disciples of the Buddha are pointed out and enumerated how they're different from each other, in different different ways, different places. And each each difference is honored and respected. As opposed to everyone's supposed to be like the Buddha. Each of the enlightened disciples of the Buddha is seen as being different. Sees practice a little bit differently. The, the way they practice, the way they specialize in the practice is different from everyone. My favorite story of uniqueness in the Pali Canon is this monk who... Uh, he was supposed to be fully awakened, fully enlightened, Arat. And he was out wandering around the countryside with other monks. And they came to a river that had to be forded, kind of shallow river, maybe, I don't know, knee-high or something. And so this monk um, uh, jacked up his robes, like a skirt, right? Jacked it up. And, you know, monks don't wear underwear, so at least back then. And so he jacked it up to his waist and then kind of pranced across the river to the other side. So the other monks went to the Buddha to complain. <laughs> so this is this is very unbecoming. You know, monks monks decorum was broken here. Monks were supposed to be decorous, decorous. You know, you know, carry themselves with dignity and this you know this guy. And, he, and he's supposed to be an arhat. How could this be? And the Buddha said, "Oh, he is an arhat. However, for five hundred years before this lifetime, he was a monkey." <laughs> And sometimes his monkey nature still comes through. <laughs> so maybe you've been a raccoon, or maybe you've been for 500 lifetimes, or maybe you've been a, who knows, a deer. So you still get a little afraid sometimes, because deer are always seems afraid. I don't know. Who knows, what you, who knows what's coming through you? And, um, and I think it's really important, and it really, really helps the Dharma practice if you, if you allow yourself to be yourself, not be in conflict with what's coming through you, not be in conflict even with your neurosis or your attachments, not so that you can keep barely being attached and suffer because of it, but so that you can really see it more clearly, so you can have a relationship to the attachment that's more productive and more useful for cutting through it, for learning to let go of it. So how do we relate? How do we hold all these things? It's so important. So here we are. So here we are. This is our bodhimanda. Here we find the Dharma in this body. Mary Grace said, don't do anything that takes you away from your body. It's such a powerful and important teaching to stay close in Stay close, stay intimate. To develop a deep intimacy with this body is also a very useful way of unfolding in the Dharma. Uh, some 15 years ago, I, I surveyed all the books that I could find easily on about Buddhism and was surprised uh, that almost none of them back then talked about the importance of the body as part of Buddhist practice. Whereas my Fifteen years before that practice in Buddhist monasteries, the body had been a really important part of the whole uh, Dharma practice. 
and uh, the body was kind of like, a, like the body is really like the meditation hall. So much unfolds, so much emphasis in Buddhism is made on practicing with the body, becoming embodied, where we feel like we're inhabiting our body rather than just pulling it around, is so crucial to the unfolding of mindfulness. So crucial that sometimes I prefer to call uh, translate sati as bodyfulness as opposed to mindfulness. You know, the word sati, there's no mind in the word sati. It just, you know, it, the English people who translated it came up with the word in the late 1800s uh, uh, have some reference in the Bible. They, 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 it was, it was the word mindfulness was in the Bible. And they thought it was a good word for sati. And maybe it is. Nowadays we use it. But um, there's nothing about the mind in the original word. Um, the word, the rich sati is cognate with the word to uh, remember in Pali. And uh, what I love about that, at least in English, is that um, the idea of remember, to put the members back together, all the pieces of ourselves together, all the, you know, the arms and legs and stomachs, heads and everything kind of, to integrate it all so it's together. So to come back, to start waking up in the body, be aware of the body, is a really important part of the practice. And the body has a variety of values things can happen. One is, it's already been said, I think, is that um, the body is always in the present moment. And so if you're connected to your body, you're in the present moment. Your thoughts may or may not, probably not, concerning the present moment. Often thoughts are about past and future or fantasy. But to kind of connect into the, to the body, you know you're in the present. But and coming back to the body is also a good way of cutting through or letting go of the involvement in the thinking mind. So you, when you come back to your breathing, which is a physical part of the body, uh, then you, for a moment at least, let go of your involvement with thinking. And then you're here, maybe for a few moments or a little while, and then you might wander off again. Now, once you've established some presence, some mindfulness here, whether it's two breaths or five breaths or some stronger sense of presence, that becomes a very interesting reference point for when you wander off in your thoughts. Because rather than, so, so when you wander off in thought, you know, there's no need to be critical or angry with that or be, think you're doing something wrong. That's what the mind does. The mind makes thoughts. Um, but what you can do when you notice that <coughs> is you can tr investigate what the experience is like to be lost in your thoughts, to be wandering in your thoughts, in contrast to those, those moments of that time when you were more fully present. What's the contrast? What's the difference like? Because chances are, I mean, so, so, some things, everyone might have, people, people have different ways of experiencing this, but some of the ways is that with um, um, when we get kind of kind of excessively involved in thinking, caught up in thoughts, there's often a kind of a constriction or con constriction of awareness, contraction of the mind, or a darkening. Some people sometimes talk about a darkening of the mind. It was kind of mind seemed kind of clear or luminous or transparent or something or open, and then they realize when they were lost in thought that it was a darkening of all that or losing touch with all that. So, 
it's interesting to, to begin exploring what's that, what's, so the very, the very thing which was a distraction to being present becomes the food for investigation what's that experience like and as you become more aware of what it's like then you'll catch it more earlier and you'll start appreciating the differences and the, the nuances of what's happening and the more you start noticing the nuances and the details of what's happening the more interesting it becomes and the more you kind of want to be here and noticing what, what it is um, and the useful attitude that I have it's been useful for me about the wandering mind so this is kind of what one of the things the mind does is wander away think about things um, I don't find it so useful to be in conflict with that or fight that too hard or fight it at all but I think of it as um, there's a rhythm there's a rhythm in life there's a rhythm of sleeping and being awake there's a rhythm of you know walking and I don't know what eating and not eating there's a rhythm uh, to um, coming to meditate and then end of meditation going to do walking meditation there's a rhythm that happens in the day there's all these rhythms and there's a rhythm in our breathing breathing in and breathing out there's a rhythm of wandering off and coming back. And, um, and your job is not necessarily to have this like solid, hard idea, oh, I'm not supposed to be wandering off, I have to kind of you know, resist that and bear down and whatever. It's more like appreciate, oh, there's the rhythm of wandering off in thought. My job is to provide the other side of that rhythm of coming back. As soon as you notice, you, you, know, you can investigate it or whatever, but your job is to come back. You contribute to the rhythm. And then you, whenever you can, you come back. And you kind of feel, it's more like you're massaging the mind. You're, you know, you kind of, it's much more easeful that way. And you come back. Your job is to come back as often as you can, but without any idea that it was wrong or bad, that you wandered off. So it's more easeful that way. You're part of the rhythm. And then as you get into that rhythm, um, the, uh, the, the strength of our thinking mind will abate. It's, you know, calm down, tend to calm down, and um, and you'll find yourself wandering off less, and the periods of coming back will be longer, and the rhythm will get slower and slower, and the longer, longer periods, um, with the um, with the awareness beat. The note awareness stays longer. Um, so I, I tell you that because I've 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 had that attitude with my thinking. And I offer it to you also as an ex- another example of how to practice without being in conflict, but to kind of just be with how it is. The other thing about um, being in the body is being aware of the body, um, taking an interest in the body, is the body is a phenomenal <coughs> book. It's a phenomenal sutra. It's a phenomenal place of wisdom, understanding, of underst- uh, what's going on for us. So much so that... Um, I have uh, changed Jung or Freud's famous quote, I forget who said it, that the dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. Gill's statement is, <laughs> the body is the royal road to the unconscious. Because you can, you can really kind of go into the felt sense of experience, how things are felt and experienced. It opens up to a big uh, uh, range of kind of depth of what makes us tick, what makes us work, what motivates us our feelings, our depths of our emotion. It makes space for things to be born. It makes space for things to uh, flower. That so much so much unfolds through a body which is open and receptive. So much unfolds in a body that is given time and space in the light of awareness. 
So one of the ways I, I practice in my body is um, when, um, when, any, when anything happens, I try to notice what is the felt sense in the body of that experience. How is it felt? What sensations come into play? So when I, I remember that comes to mind when I was in Burma, I would um, uh, sometimes there was there during the monsoons, and suddenly I was happily meditating, minding my own business, and suddenly on the tin roof of the of the of the building there would be this huge torrential downpour, and when that that was my signal to really drop into my body and feel through my body, through my skin, what, how things had changed in the atmosphere and the mood, everything, now that it was raining. What was a felt sense? What was a, a sensory quality of having this rain suddenly appear and come down? So, uh, what is a felt sense of some strong sensation in your body? What's the felt sense? What's the sensory quality of frustration or anger or sadness or happiness or joy? How's that felt in the body? And even something as subtle uh, as thinking, uh, if you're sensitive enough, thinking itself will have a, f a physical quality to it. What's the felt sense of the physicality of thinking? And as I said earlier, one of the advantages of this dropping into the felt sense, the way it's sensorially experienced in the body, is that it... Um, um, then you're not involved in the story. You're telling yourself ideas. You come back to the simplicity of just being here. Simplicity of just being here without um, needing to be someone else. Without needing to compare yourself to past and future without needing to judge yourself good or bad, without needing to be anything but just here with this experience. And then one more thing about the body. And that is that um, the body that Buddhism emphasizes is not the physical body. It is the physical body. But the way that you know that you have a body, especially if you close your eyes, is through the sensations that move through the body. If you're alive, you have sensations, tingling, all kinds of sensations in your body. Apparently, when we die, body doesn't have any sensations anymore. It comes up. All the sensing disappears. It's a sign of life to be sensing, to have sensations. And that the sensing, the sensations, uh, have, ex are experienced throughout the body. If I touch my palms together, I experience the, the, the smoothness, the texture of my hands, the pressure, the softness, the hardness. I experience it in the place where the hands touch themselves. So we say that sensing and sensation are non-dual. There's no separation between sensing and sensation. Our whole body 
is an organ of sensations, of sensing. Our whole body is capable of sensing and feeling, sensing. Um, there's all these you know, nerves at the end. As we keep coming back to our body and feeling our body, trusting our body, letting things unfold through the body, sitting upright with our body, then um, this field of awareness, which is our body, becomes stronger and stronger. And for me, one of the uh, significant things I feel has has, uh, uh, awoken to me in this practice is this very strong sense of presence. A sense of presence which seems to almost radiate out of this body or through this body. And my practice of mindfulness or my practice of awareness is something like 34, uh, probably something like three quarters of it is presence. And a quarter of it is mindfulness. Mindfulness meaning clearly recognizing, noticing, oh, this is what it is, this is what it is. The mindfulness is one of the things that goes on within a field of presence field of awareness. There's a lot of things that go on in the field of awareness. And one of those things that's very significant, very valuable, is the mindfulness that we emphasize here. But there's this uh, wider kind of awareness or presence that uh, within which it occurs. And so when I come back to my body and stay in my body, for me, that's, that's, that's one way where that wider sense of presence gets tapped into or awake, awakened or I find myself in. And it's one of the ways that for me to have a different relationship to my experience is to allow my experience to exist within this wider field of awareness or presence. If I'm only experiencing things through my thoughts, how I think about it, it's a very narrow window. It's a very narrow way of relating to things. And if mindfulness is only about thinking about things in a particular way, very simple way, thinking, thinking, you know. That also is very narrow. It's like two-dimensional. But if the mindfulness can be supported by this wider sense of felt sense presence, um, then it's like three-dimensional. It's much deeper. It's easier to exist here without being in conflict. It's easier to have a sense, have a sense or understanding, that all the things that arise in awareness our thoughts, our beliefs, our judgments, ideas about who we are, the ways we have to defend ourselves and prove ourselves. Now, all those things are not really who we are. They're just things that arise in this great field, ocean of awareness. And we can see them arise and pass and not believe them, not give them so much authority. Because what has greater authority is the, is the, the whole unfolding of experience through the field of awareness without our interference. If this all seems rather esoteric, it's okay. It might not be the right way that you and your particular way of unfolding the Dharma is supposed to unfold. And I'm quite ready, prepared to be told that wasn't useful.
<laughs> so before we end, I'd like to try one more time to say something useful. Um, I think of the mindfulness of the body as being the great balancer. It helps us come into balance. And uh, just last week with Heather, uh, with this wonderful um, little exercise with kindergarten to fourth graders, where we had, we can maybe ask some of you who still feel like you're in kindergarten to come up here, <laughs> like I had them come up here. <laughs> I had them come to the front of the room at Spirit Rock. And I asked them, um, I, had, I asked them to uh, act out an emotion. So act out anger. So they all kind of got angry with me and gnarling and snarling. And, and, uh, and then I said, freeze. And they all froze in their posture. And then I said, okay, notice what's going on in your body. And, um, and what do you need to do with your body to not be exhibiting this anger? And they were old enough to realize what you had to do was relax your body. Just let go of the tension and all this gnarling and snarling. And I did that with fear. Same thing, relax. If you're mindful of what goes on in the body, mindful of how emotions are expressed in the body, fear and anger, you'll feel the tension. If you're mindful of how you're posturing, holding yourself up to be kind of a tough guy, some of you, you'll feel that tension. If you feel, if you're kind of collapsing out of fear, if you're really in your body, you'll feel that. And if you come back to sitting to relax, have your body be relaxed and present, you'll come into balance. And then I had the kids act out being sad. And they weren't that very convincing, so I, I told them, you know, try harder. <laughs> you know, come on, get sad. And, you know, it took a while for them to really start collapsing. But eventually they started collapsing, because that's, I guess, the exaggerated form of sadness. It just collapsed. <sighs> okay. The, um... Zen student and we had this really long period of zazen meditation. It was, really, it was way long. It was like it was going to be zazen until the abbot showed up. And he wasn't showing up. He was, you can't move, right? And I was, it was the end of the day. I was so tired. I was so much pain. And I was just, I couldn't stand it. And he wasn't coming, he wasn't coming. And so finally, you know, poor little Gil, I finally I did the really unzen thing. I just collapsed. <laughs> and who should walk into the door? <laughs> and the door was right in front of where I was sitting. It was the abbot. That was one of those times I went back to my room and cried. <laughs> so anyways, I had the kids collapse. And then I said, okay, now what do you need to do? Notice your body, have them freeze. Now what do you need to do? And what you need to do then is to sit, stand up straight. Not puff up, but just stand up. So in some situations, you need to relax. In some situations, you need to sit up a little bit straighter. The body helps mediate this, this world. And the thing about relaxing the body, or sitting up straighter in certain situations, it's not meant to, it's not meant to chase away what we're feeling, or be critical of what we're feeling. It's helping us come into balance with what we're feeling, as opposed to 
being pushed around by it, being caught up in it. So if you're, uh, if you're really depressed and you're slumped over, um, then come and sit straight, upright, dignified. And then notice your depression. If you are filled with rage, which you're allowed to do here, as long as you don't act out, because you're, you're certainly allowed. You're allowed to cry here. All kinds of things you can do here. You're allowed to be who you are, as long as it doesn't impact other people too much. Um, what is it like to just sit straight with that? Relax the body in your anger and sit straight. Close your eyes and just sit with it and be explored in your body. Awake, awake what's going on in your body. The, your body is your great friend. Your body is a great teacher. Your body is the bodhimanda, the place of awakening. Keep coming back to your body. Trust your body. Trust the unfolding of what unfolds through your body. Get to know your body. Befriend it. Be friendly to it. Be friendly to yourself. And I hope that you also will learn that you can trust the unfolding of experience and awareness and that you love everyone, <laughs> especially yourself. Thank you. <laughs>